Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Eliza Kingsford. Eliza is a licensed psychotherapist, mind-body practitioner, and behavior change specialist who helps clients struggling with weight, body image, food addiction, and emotional eating. Through extensive postgraduate studies in stress, trauma, and the nervous system, Eliza is helping clients overcome stubborn obstacles getting in the way of their happiest and healthiest life. Eliza's work goes well beyond food and exercise to address the root cause of why we have such a hard time changing, even when we really want to. She's the author of Brain-Powered Weight Loss and has sat on scientific advisory boards with the leading researchers in the field of food addiction, obesity, and weight management. In the episode, Eliza discusses the role childhood trauma can play in weight challenges later in life, how nervous system dysregulation can be the root cause of dieting failures, what you can do to better regulate your nervous system, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Eliza. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. You are so welcome. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited to have you and to talk about brain-powered weight loss and whatever else may come up. I love that term. It stood out to me immediately. I've never heard weight loss described in that way. So Mm. very excited to dive into this topic. Before we do, could you start by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to become a psychotherapist and to specialize in weight management, food addiction, body image, and eating disorders? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Um, So, you know, I, I sort of started my career in, in, in psychology. I just, I was always fascinated with why we do what we do, why some people do it this way and some people do it this way. Just sort of a, a, a fascination that I now know stemmed from my own nervous system development and the things that you know I was attuned to as a child. And that makes sense that I was really, really interested in how people work. It makes sense to me looking back. Um, but that led me to graduate school and graduate school led me to pretty classical clinical training in, in clinical psychology for graduate school. Um, and the reason I sort of describe it that way is since my postgraduate studies, I have been led down some avenues that 
um, deviate a little from the sort of normal classical clinical training, especially as we learn so much more now about the brain and the role of the nervous system in our behaviors. Um, you know, it was pretty classically clinically trained and got very, very interested in how people's struggle with weight, whether that be underweight or overweight. At the time, I was interested in just weight in general. Does that mean you're underweight? Or does that mean you carry you know, more weight on your body? How are our struggles with food interplayed with our psychology, sort of inner landscape? And it led me to really specialize and focus in originally eating disorders. And then uh, as I worked in eating disorder centers, I became very, very drawn to people struggling with with weight, with weight issues, they were identifying as being in larger bodies. And, um, I, I really was drawn to that type of, um, type of interplay there. So I had the incredible fortune to, um, you know, my path took me to some of the leading researchers in the field of, you know, what we're calling food addiction. That's can be sometimes a, a triggering term, but I can sort of explain more about that. Um, people who were, who were researching eating disorders, disordered eating behavior, weight management, food addiction. Uh, and, and throughout the course of my career, um, I, I really focused on the interplay of psychology and nutrition science, right? So why do we choose food? How do we choose food? And what is the part of our psychology that impacts that? So beyond just food choices or you know the type of food but but why and how and what's our pattern so that ultimately um fast forward a number of years that ultimately led to the book and and you know why it was called brain powered weight loss because really um if we're looking beyond just diet and exercise we're really looking at you know why we choose the foods we choose why we choose the movement we choose, why we don't do better even when we know better, right? Why we don't eat the things that we know will make us feel good or whatever it is. Um, there's something beyond that. And that is the thing that drove me and still drives my work today. So mm. that's how we got here. As a nutrition and weight loss coach myself, I can't tell you how many times somebody has come to me and said, I know exactly what to do. I just exactly. can't do it. And yeah. so there's that extra piece. Uh, I read a quote the other day. I'm going to probably botch it, but it was something like the power of your thoughts controls the power of your life, mm. which is interesting to think about, I thought. And just especially, you know, if you can kind of work on your thoughts around anything, but let's say a challenge is weight loss, really working on your thoughts around food is such a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of diets, most diets don't tackle that piece. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, over the course of a couple of decades now, you know, that, that was the, and still is the, the burning question that I sought to answer, right? Exactly what you just said, you know, same, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, I know what to do, I just don't do it right? Mm -hmm. Or I do it for a short amount of time, then I stop doing it. And I revert to these old behaviors. Why can't I get myself to just do what I know I should do? That was the, the burning question that kept kind of driving my, my researching deeper and deeper and deeper and into other topics. And so that what that eventually led to was a 
visually sort of this pyramid of how we actually change. And when people, the traditional path of change is that people want an outcome. The outcome is the top of the pyramid. If we have a visual, right? The outcome is the very top of the pyramid and people want that outcome. So they think, well, I'm just going to change my behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. If I change what I do, then I'll get a different outcome. Okay. Well, and it sounds good. And that's where we all start. And that's where most diets, to your point, start, right? Well, change your behaviors, change what you eat, change your movement, right? It sounds good. But what we don't realize, what we don't understand is that our behaviors originate three levels below that top layer, right? Mm. So if outcome is at the top, we've got the behavior level. Then we've got what you just said, which was the mindset level. Right? So that's one layer down from behaviors is our mindset, and that's good, and we should work on the mindset. But there's even two layers below that that dictate our ability to change our mindset, which hmm. dictates our ability to change our behaviors. And those two layers beneath are beliefs and identity, and at the very, very foundation layer is the nervous system and the, and the layer of safety. And what's so interesting and so I would say, you know, brain-powered weight loss, which is where we were starting, is that's at that sort of mid-layer, right? That's at the mindset layer. Um, and and we want to do the mindset layer because the mindset layer dictates our behaviors, which leads us to our outcomes. That's good. But truly, where what we know now through neuroscience and the, the research and, and everything that has come out about neuroplasticity and trauma and the effect of stress and trauma perceived and otherwise on our physiological body, but also our capacity, the effects of that um, allow us, or I should say, set the stage for us to be able to change anything. So mm. when people get to me and say, I know what to do, I just can't get myself to do it we go way down to that foundational level and look at the development awareness of and then creating resilience and capacity in the nervous system. And that's that's really, from my history, from my experience, from my you know um, training, that's where I believe all behaviors originate from is in the nervous system. Is what you're talking about at all touching on the ACEs quiz or the mm -hmm. ACEs questionnaire? Yeah, Can you explain absolutely. more about that? ACEs, which is the Early Childhood Experiences Study, showed us the impact of experiences in childhood having tangible outcomes physiologically, both physiologically, mentally, and emotionally in adults. And the reason why that was so important was because Really, we what we ended up doing with the ACEs study is that we traced it backwards. So these people were already adults, right? And so we were looking at some of the, not to get too deep into it, but the the original researcher found this or got to this pathway accidentally. He was at, he was asking a question. He'd been doing so many interviews. He actually he asked the question accidentally. He didn't mean to, but it led to him making this connection between women who were struggling with weight and having early childhood trauma. Now, that does not by any means say that you know, if you're struggling with weight, it means you have to have childhood trauma, but it allowed us to get a very, very large sample of people and look at their histories in reverse, right? So these people were already adults and we were able to 
you know, look at these, um, this questionnaire and run them through this questionnaire and say, did any of these things happen in your childhood? And then extrapolate things out of that data, right? And what we know from the data, and it's a study of, you know, I believe it's I don't want to butcher this. I think it's like 97,000 people. It's a a very large study that allows us to look at data from a lot of different angles and start to look at the impact on early experiences in childhood and what happens later in life. So, you know, heart disease, uh, weight, BMI, um, obesity, or uh, obesity, type one diabetes, type two diabetes, um, on and on and on. It, It allows us to look at what were their current health outcomes and you know what were their early childhood experiences so this was a really seminal study that we're still pulling data from and one of one of the one of the many 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 things that we learned is that early childhood experiences directly correlates if not causes but we're going to say correlates adverse outcomes later in life right and so the importance of that is that we cannot downplay the impact of our experiences in childhood. It doesn't mean we control the circumstances, but we do know so much more about how we can mitigate the environment so that we don't have major, major health implications as adults. Hmm. And when you say trauma, is it something like abuse or is it really hardcore what we think of as trauma or could it be something like a lesser trauma as well yeah so this is the the really important part to to talk about when we talk about trauma when we're talking about the aces study in particular they were looking at more because you had to have a way of sort of categorizing things so that people could answer yes or no to the question, right? They were looking at things like, you know, did you have a family member that was imprisoned? Was there death at an early age? Was there abuse or neglect, right? So there was very specific things that we might all um, think of as what some people call big T trauma. But as a general rule, Trauma is not the what we know now, again, from a nervous system perspective, through studying the nervous system, trauma is not the circumstances that happened to us. Trauma is when an individual's um, belief or ability to handle the circumstances uh, is, is diminished. Or in other words, the person's belief that they have the tools, skills, or ability to handle the circumstances is not there. So it's not so much what happens to us. It's do we have, or feel like we have the ability to deal with what's happened to us. And when people, um, go beyond their capacity to deal with circumstances, that's when things get interpreted by the nervous system as trauma. So, you know, the same thing could happen to a child at the same age, but a child in an environment uh, where they have more skills or more support or more resources, they will not experience that in their system as trauma. A child who has the same circumstances, but has no skills, no resources, no support will experience the same circumstances as trauma, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I want to 
to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at 25 to 50% off retail prices. For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment, which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. If some people have a very strong sense of belief and identity, and what was the bottom layer you said? Nervous system is the bottom layer. So okay. Call and that safety. Yeah. Okay. And the safety. So if they have kind of a solid bottom two rungs, mm-hmm. can they mm-hmm. kind of jump right in at the mindset piece working towards weight loss? Yes. And then other people kind of have to start deeper? Correct. Yeah. So I find that the people who are really struggling with this sort of, <laughs> you know, I know what to do. I just won't do it. That's a that's usually an indicator that there's something in the bottom couple layers that need to be adjusted. And it's it's not just a, I'll go back just a couple of steps. It's not just a I believe that if you have, you know, the mindset ability or I believe you have safety or the belief systems aligned, then you can work on the mindset. What's happening is actually at a physiological level. So we see this in therapy too, in that there's something like you know, 430 modalities of therapy, but all of them require the nervous system to be in a state of safety, enough capacity in the nervous system to be able to use the skills of those therapeutic modalities. If people are not in that state of safety, if they are dysregulated in sympathetic or dorsal, if they're dysregulated, they can't they don't have access from a physiological standpoint, meaning the, the prefrontal cortex doesn't give them access to executive functioning skills that are necessary in order to make changes in therapy. So back to your question, in order for people to use mindset tools like affirmations or changing the narrative or you know, ch- tracking their automatic thoughts. Some of those things are in my book, right? In order for people to have the ability to use those tools, they have to be living pretty regularly in a state of relative regulation. Hmm. If they are living pretty regularly in uh, hypervigilance or you know, sympathetic activation, what we call sort of hot system dominance, It's not that they're choosing not to use those tools. It's that the executive functioning that needs to be switched on so we can use those tools is not online. So we have to get people back into a regulated state or a cool system dominance enough 
so that they can go to those next levels, mindset work, behavior change, and then outcome. For some people then, is the best approach to weight loss first working with a therapist? Uh, For some people, absolutely. Because what I can tell you, I mean, if you're a practitioner working with, you know, and and giving amazing nutrition advice and giving amazing mindset advice, it's absolutely true that our our narrative is, is part of our outcomes without a doubt. But for someone who just is, um, struggling or there's resistance there. They kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again and can't figure out why they, they aren't able to change. Then it's a pretty darn good indicator that priority number one is, is nervous system regulation. And you know, that the hard part about this is that as a culture, so many pieces of our culture set us up to be in this sort of hot system dominance on a regular basis too many inputs, not enough time spent, um, you know, putting ourselves in regulation on purpose, believing that this is just the way it goes, right? Burnout. We see burnout all the time, or I'm just going to go, 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 go until I collapse. That's kind of the culture that we live in. The issue is that that culture actually physiologically keeps us from being able to make changes because we are in activation overdrive all the time. So to answer your question, yes, I do think there's a certain percentage of people that really need to get regulated first before they can make meaningful change. And it's not a choice. It's not because they don't want to, or they're not a good client or they're lazy. It's quite literally, they have to get their system regulated before they can make those changes. And what you're speaking of, I mean, the vast majority of people don't understand this, right? It's like Mm. when labels are thrown about of, oh, just lose the weight or you're lazy. I mean, I would argue the people I have worked with who are overweight and trying to release weight have worked harder than any of us to lose the weight. So it's it's not a matter of laziness at all. I completely agree. It's It's, the opposite of laziness. It is the opposite where they literally all they think about is food and all they do all day long. This is not an exaggeration is plan meals, you know, try, 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 try. It's the absolute opposite. And so this message is so important. I completely agree with you. I, and I, you know, not only are they the most dedicated and diligent, they also, you probably experienced this. They know the most about nutrition, yes. right? They've read every book. They have a PhD basically exactly. in it. Yes. Yes. And so these are all indicators and, and I completely agree with you. It, it's um, the, the stigma and the narratives around people who struggle with, late, or with weight fail to take into account sort of these the, the complex compounding issues that build on one another that lead to these outcomes. And and for the people who manage their weight relatively, we're going to call it relatively easily, I always tell my clients this, they struggle with something else. This mm-hmm. is just not their, you know what I mean? This is not the way that their nervous system has learned to cope with dysregulation. There's something else that's happening for them, right? Um, for for most people, I would say. It's just, it's it's that their nervous system has not adopted 
uh, food as one of the adaptive survival strategies when they're dysregulated. Uh, and this, and you know, if you look at this from a macro level, if you zoom out thirty thousand feet, you know that the the trending, the way our you know weight is trending, you can look at the cultural impact of nervous system dysregulation. Right? There's just this, it's if you are considered quote in a healthy weight and. Listen, I'm happy to debate BMI yeah, yeah. all day long. It, it's not even really, um, it's a topic for a different day. But if we're just looking at some data, taking away the stigma of BMI and things, the way we are trending as, you know, let's just call it in the US, but the way we are trending is that weight continues to be one of the things that is impacted by a culture that has dysregulated nervous systems. How do you know if your nervous system is dysregulated? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think is most important for people to do is to understand just the basics of what am I even talking about when we're talking about the nervous system? Uh, and so, you know, I will address three states of the nervous system very, very briefly, the, just the, the briefest of touch on it. I say that just so your listeners know, there's a whole lot more to this, but so that they can start recognizing what we're talking about. But we have three physiological states, not mental states, not mindsets, not choices. We have three physiological states in the body, which mean that there's different systems in the body activated when we're in each state. And the most primitive state is what's called dorsal vagal um, or our, our dorsal vagus part of our nervous system, our most primitive state. And, and in that state, the, the functions of the body is that it slows everything down, slows the heart rate down, slows the body down, slows the heartbeat down, slows the breathing down. Everything slows. When I say it's the most primitive state, it was the thing that was developed first for protection. It was the only way that us as an organism, when we were first created millions of years ago, it's the only way we were alive is if we just played dead. It's for protection only. It's called immobilization. It's a very primitive state. The second state that was then sort of created, developed over time of evolution was what most people know of as the sympathetic state, right? Fight or flight. Everybody's heard of fight or flight right? Sympathetic state. And that state was developed so that we could run from an enemy, right? We could run from a prey that's chasing us. And when we're in that state, what happens in the physiology? Heartbeat starts beating, right? Palms start sweating, right? You're ready to move. It's called mobilization, right? You need to mobilize. You need to get away from your predator, right? So that mobilization state allows us to move, fight, flight, right? We can, we can flee from that state. The third state is the ventral vagal state of connection. This state was the last state to develop from a physiological standpoint, and that state allows us to connect with others. It's the social states. The only, we're the only ones with this social engagement system with a prefrontal cortex that we have. It allows us to connect with others. Again, if I'm oversimplifying all of it, it's our state of safety. So if that's just the briefest of introduction, so much more to that, so many more pieces. As humans, we all have these three states. Do I feel connected? 
Do I feel activated like I'm about to run from something or do I feel shut down like play dead? You know, it's, it's over. So I'm just going to collapse. Now, again, this is a gross oversimplification of the nervous system. But to answer your question, we can all start to recognize what it feels like physiologically to be in each of these states. What allows us to feel safely connected? What's happening in my body when I feel activated? What's happening in my body when I feel shut down, right? So we hear terms thrown around a lot that actually give us information about our physiological states, right? So when we're talking about, I'm just frozen, right? I just, I freeze. I can't, well, that's an, that's actually a physiological state in the body where it's trying to protect you from something and you are frozen. Your cognitive abilities go offline. Your energy gets redirected to different organs in the body that are not needed for creativity and thinking and communicating. It's quite literally for paralysis and protection. So when people say they feel frozen, scared, stiff, right? That they're describing a physiological state. When they say that they see red or get activated or they're super um, aggravated, right? This is all a state of energy, activation, mobilization. And again, it's a physiological state, not an emotional state or a mental state. It's happening in the body. And when those states happen in the body, the resources that go to everywhere else in the body get redirected. So I think the best way to describe the importance of the nervous system is looking at it through the lens of children. So one of the things that happens with children is something happens for them and they throw a tantrum, right? We've seen kids tantrum and it's this big emotional explosion. But you'll see parents saying, stop crying, calm down, right? Stop doing that. And the thing is, they'll start to interpret their child as, defiant or they won't do it. I'm telling them to do. And I always walk them through and explain to them physiologically, they cannot hear you. Mm. All of the parts of their body that are responsible for taking information in, by the way, in order to take information in, people have to be in their safety state, right? So for a child to be able to hear you and be able to, from a cognitive standpoint, take in what you're saying and change their behavior, they have to be in a different physiological state. So when a child is in a tantrum, the best, and quite frankly, our only option for the child is to help them get regulated first, and then we can go back to redirecting behavior. Hmm. And this happens for adults as well. You felt it when your partner does something and you just get activated, right? And when they do that, how do you communicate? Do you communicate differently when you are feeling triggered versus when you are feeling connected? We all do, right? And we end up working on changing our partners. Well, don't do this and I wouldn't act that way. Well, when we start to speak and look at ourselves through the lens of the nervous system, we go, okay, hold on a second. What I'm about to say is as a response to my system right now. What can I do in my system to help me get back into a safe space or a more regulated space? And now I can communicate with my partner differently. So much to say about this, but um, we can teach people how to recognize which states they're in 
and the impact of their communication, behaviors, decisions, ways of being when they're in each state. Once we start to make this connection, people really start to make dramatic shifts in their lives. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. For a lot of people, is the struggle that they're dysregulated and then they're turning to food as like a coping mechanism at the bottom rung of this triangle you're talking about. So trying some mindset trick in that moment isn't helpful. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So yes, and you're right. And, and that's the pathway that has been wired in the physiology somewhere wired food in with a coping strategy. And so essentially what you're saying to the physiology uh, is I'm going to take away that coping strategy. And the physiology says, no, you're not. You know, I, ha I had that for a reason. Right. And so this is why a lot of times those things don't work or feel ineffective and can leave people feeling even you know, the, it can it can leave them feeling like they're failing, right? right. More of, why doesn't this work for me, right? In reality, when we look at it through the lens of the nervous system and we're going, all right, how do I bring more awareness to what state my system is in and more regulation into the system, then the system doesn't need the strategy anymore and it's willing and able to let it go. If that makes sense. Are there any kind of DIY regulation strategies you can use on if, if you're listening to this and thinking, okay, that is me. I kind of like mm. turn to food and it feels irrational and nothing I do in that moment can help. Is there, are there different strategies you can try to help regulate your nervous system so that you don't turn to food as much? Absolutely. Yeah. There's many, many of them. Okay. I'm sure there uh, are <laughs> probably yeah. too many to name. <laughs> yeah. There's many of them, but I would say even just the notice and naming of the state, which admittedly, I apologize, but does take a little bit more, you know, a little bit more teaching about what each states are and, and how to notice them, but even just notice and naming the states and realizing, oh, I am in, when I am in sympathetic activation or dorsal shutdown, I end up behaving like this. So even as I just track my system throughout the day and recognize that I seem to be moving from safety into dysregulation, I have the ability then to go, ah, I know that when I'm in dysregulation, I end up eating this way. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just saying, I'm not going to eat, I can shift the focus to how do I bring more regulation into my system? So to answer that question, just the, the notice and naming of the system helps in and of itself. But the key here is that we focus more on doing more things to regulate our system and less on 
fixing problems and making rules. And I can have this and I can't have that because that can feel more dysregulating. So I think one of the most powerful things that people can do is to think of their nervous system like a bank account. And everything that we do throughout the day that puts a demand on our system is like a withdrawal from the bank account, right? And everything that we do, like everything you're talking about, the mindset work, right? Or choosing nourishing foods that make us feel empowering or movement that feels good or even feels sweaty and makes us feel strong. Those are deposits in the bank account, right? Or loving connections we have with our family members or breathing techniques or listening to music. These things all put deposits in our bank account. And so one of the most powerful things we can do is to kind of track our bank account throughout the day to notice when we're starting to feel like we're getting low on nervous system, low on nervous system cash, if you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. The bank account is getting close to being in overdraft because if we can start to balance our bank account more, then what ends up happening is twofold. We don't need the food to cope anymore because we have more, you know, we have more reserves in the bank account. Uh, but we also are able to have more capacity to deal with life circumstances because we have more money in the bank. And this becomes really powerful when we start addressing our nervous system and stop putting so much emphasis on behaviors, the top of that pyramid, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It sounds like what you're kind of saying in a nutshell, and I hate this term. It's so trite. Actually, everything around the idea of self-care has become very mm. trite, I think, on social mm. media. But you see people saying self-care isn't selfish, right? And yeah. so all these things, all these deposits you would make into your bank account are forms of self-care. Absolutely. If I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, and they're not selfish because you actually truly need these to help regulate your nervous system, which will then help you make different choices than you maybe would have in the past, if I'm understanding correctly. You are 100% understanding correctly. And I think even to take it even further, the best analogy is, you know, when you, when you go on an airplane and they say that you've got to put your oxygen mask on first before you put on your kids. And, you know, again, it, like you said, it feels a little trite or like a little platitude, but here's the thing, you managing your nervous system bank account or self-care as much as possible benefits everyone around you because the health of your nervous system is directly related to how you communicate with everyone, how you show up for work, how you show up for your partner, how you show up for your kids, right? Everybody benefits mm -hmm. when you are living with a bank account with more nervous system flexibility and capacity is what we called it, right? So so yeah, self-care is it's not only not selfish, it's quite honestly imperative if you want to be the healthiest and happiest version of yourself like that, and I'm sure you've worked with clients for whom, you know, the self-care is the bottom of their list. I'll get to it if I can, mm -hmm. right? I don't have time for that, those kinds of things. And I'm always encouraging people, you have got to move to the very, very tip top, right? Mm -hmm. That you are priority number one. And that is because of your nervous system bank account and how that impacts everyone around you. Throughout this entire conversation, I've been thinking about these new weight loss drugs and all the mm. buzz around them. Mm -hmm. And what you've just described is that the issue 
with obesity is so much deeper mm-hmm. than a single drug. And yes, I think that in many ways, these drugs are different than prior ones and they are helping many, many people. But I'm just wondering, what is your reaction when somebody is taking one of these drugs and they're calling it a miracle drug and it's just kind of the answer? Are you, is your next thought, yes, but there's so much other work that needs to be done at the same time? That is my exact next thought. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a yes, but, and in fact, it's actually a yes. And because mm-hmm. I think people expect me to be anti-weight loss drug. And, and I always explain, look, because it's already so complicated as we've been talking about, I'm all about tools that will help people to feel successful Right. And to find the motivation, right? All about tools. I love tools, right? Mm-hmm. The problem to me only lies when when we don't understand what the tool is and why it works. And in this case, not to drastically oversimplify things, but the the new weight loss drugs, which are actually quite effective, they're really just making it easier and and um, less difficult. They're making it easier for people to eat less. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that's essentially when we boil all of it down, they're consuming fewer calories and making it easier for people to eat less, the vast majority of them. You know, hunger cues have been diminished and, and you know, acting on certain receptors in the brain that essentially are making it so that people are eating less and it's making it easier for them to do that. I'm all for that, right? Because it is hard for people to eat less. There's a lot of there's a lot of extenuating circumstances that go into why people eat, how much they eat, that go beyond just cognitive choice, right? So if this tool helps, I'm all for it. I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm all for it. I would say it can be helpful. The problem, of course, is that people don't want to think about who they would have to be and what they would have to do afterwards. And it's the same you know, it's the, it's the age old adage is as you, as you lose weight and it feels good, we assume, we assume that that makes us a different person. And certainly once I lose the hundred pounds, I would never go back. Right. But, but that, that is the exact problem in not addressing some of these underlying things, because once we're off the drug, then the nervous system still is rearing its ugly head. And if you don't have the tool that's kind of helping you not have cravings anymore, those cravings are going to come back. And if you haven't learned the skills to manage your food intake in an effective way, all of those things are going to come back. Um, So I don't mind people using tools, but I do mind them using them, believing that that is the thing that's going to create the success rather than that being just one piece of the puzzle that helps it be easier, if that makes sense. And that's what we all want, right? In this immediate society is just the the quick. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think when they all started getting this publicity, people were speaking about them of, oh my God, now there's this miracle cure and I just yeah. do this and all my answer, everything's solved. I have no more issues anymore. Mm-hmm. But now I think as people have used the drugs for a while, and I know at least for my clients, maybe they're having a lot of side effects or, Mm -hmm. you know, they lost a lot of weight, but they're nauseous all day or they're sleeping poorly. I mean, there's different 
things that come with it. So it's not necessarily the miracle cure that everybody was promoting, but at the same time, it's an extremely effective tool for some people in conjunction with working on lifestyle factors absolutely, and your nervous system I've learned today at the same time. Yeah. And I completely agree is it's the in conjunction with that's right. The biggest piece. And you are, you're so right. I, I remember I was listening to, I think it was a podcast with Dr. Bill Campbell out of in the University of Florida or somewhere in Florida. I don't know if it was actually the University of Florida, but his whole lab is about uh, adiposity and, and sort of what leads to fat loss and things like that. Fast forward, he was saying, you know, I've been doing this research for so many years. And even I, myself, the researcher who has been doing fat loss research over and over and over again, even I, when I'm in a fat loss phase, want it to be faster more yeah. now. And I know right. better, right? Like that's just the way that <laughs> yeah. we are wired. I want it to be faster, easier, and right now. And right. that's one of the things that we have to teach the nervous system, by the way, is safety in the process, right? Like how it's okay and how do I become more okay and more regulated in consistency, in commitment, in having a process that we commit to consistently over time. How do I teach myself that that part of the process feels okay? That's something that's difficult for people to learn in a culture, in an environment where everything is mm. now, miracle, weight loss, drug, quicker, this much in this amount of time, as you know, all of those things are A, usually untrue and B, just distracts people from the actual things that are necessary to get to lasting weight loss results, you know? Yeah. Fall in love with the process, right? Rather than mm-hmm. the result. It's hard. It's so hard. hard. It is it's really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, before this, I was on Amazon looking at something silly like band-aids and there were two options and one was delivered tomorrow and one was delivered today. I was like, Oh, today. <laughs> I'll get the today yeah. one, yeah. obviously. But I mean, yeah. it is very difficult in this society where we can yeah. order food from our phone and it's here in 20 minutes, or we can get band-aids delivered in five hours. It's just, and it's only getting quicker and quicker. And so then when you start a sustainable weight loss journey where you're falling in love with the process and you're creating a lifestyle rather than doing some, quick fad diet. I mean, that's, it's really counterintuitive. It's really, it's challenging. It is. And not to bring everything back to the nervous system, but quite honestly, I believe everything does go back to the nervous system, but here's how that's problematic, right? So as we, as the age of technology, you know, erupted, and now we've got this, as you're talking about faster now, right now, the, the, the dark side of that is that we're teaching our systems. We, we have lost the ability for patience, boredom, mm. waiting. And so we're, we're filling everything, right? Where it's, it's emails happen now. Um, uh, uh, text messages have to be answered now. Amazon needs to be dropped off now. You know, people are watching Netflix while checking their phone and reading a book at the same time. And we, and we sort of chuckle of like, oh, that's problematic. But what, the, what is actually happening in our physiology is that we're losing the ability to be regulated in stillness mm-hmm. and the ability to be regulated in still safely regulated from a physiology standpoint, being able to be safely regulated in stillness 
is one of the hallmarks of being able to, what you just said, fall in love with the process Mm -hmm. of losing weight. It requires, can I be safely regulated while I slow down, pay attention maybe to the choices I'm making or the meals that I'm choosing or whatever part of the process they're in, can I be safely still? And and for many of my clients who are working on, uh, you know, binge eating or emotional eating, or even just habit and boredom eating, a lot of it has to do with where do I feel safe in stillness? And if you ask a lot of people right now to safely sit still, and that, that feels super cringy to you, ooh, your nervous system has been developed and and has learned a way of being that if I don't have something stimulating me at all times, then it doesn't feel so good. That's Mm -hmm. when we reach for food habitually. That's when, you know, anyways, it goes on and on and on. But that as a, as a cultural, as a culture, I believe this is problematic that we are, we are getting further and further away from being able to be safely still. And we have to teach our systems how to do that. We have to do it intentionally on purpose these days because we've gotten so far from it. Hmm. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Hmm. Well, I suppose it would be no surprise to you that, uh, for me, making the ultimate health investment is in gaining knowledge about your nervous system, the trajectory of your own unique nervous system, and how to bring more regulation, more flexibility and resilience to it. To me, that is the sort of ultimate investment that you can you can make in your health um, in every area, I would say. Where can listeners follow and find you? Yeah. So super easy at Eliza Kingsford, um, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I don't do a lot of social media. I'll be honest. I try to be, be better there. Um, but Eliza Kingsford.com is my website, which by the way, is being redone. Hopefully by the time this comes out, it will be all set and ready to go. But Eliza Kingsford.com is a great place to connect. And do you work with clients all over the country? I do. Yeah. And Oh, awesome many countries actually. Yeah. So it's most of my work, if not all of it at this point is sort of digital, um, online and, and, and all over, all over the world. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely fascinating. I thought, you know, we were going to talk about mindset, which is great. And I was excited to talk about that, but I am thrilled that we went even deeper. And I know I learned things that I've never thought about before, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. listeners did as well. So truly, thank you for your time, Eliza. It was such a pleasure having you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs.
Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.